Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast where we sometimes talk about the books we've written. I'm your host for this episode only, Ella Risbridger. You'll remember the episode where we talked about my book, and now it's Caroline's turn. Hi. Hi, Caroline. I thought you did a great job. Welcome to your own podcast. (laughs) (laughs) My own podcast recorded in my own home. In my own pyjamas. In your own pyjamas. Yeah. I have taken my bra off. Yeah. (laughs) Her bra and her tights off, so we're letting it hang loose. No parents. (laughs) There are no parents. Gav's in Wales. We can say whatever we want. Stay up as late as we like. That's it. Nobody's wearing a bra. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Caroline's second novel, Scenes of a Graphic Nature, has been out in hardback for the last month and in ebook since June. So this is an all spoilers discussion of the novel. Yeah, this is very much for the real heads, I think. The people who would went out and bought the book and read it and now they want to think about it. Also Silva's here. (laughs) Silva's here. But I think that's okay thematically, because there is a Jack Russell in the novel who you've now got tattooed on your arm. I do. There is a dog called Satan in the novel, and he is now tattooed on my inner wrist. If you if you have the hardback and there's a uh, illustration on the inner flap, that is the same tattoo that I have. It's really nice. Thank you. I really love it. I can't believe you didn't tell me you were going to get it. I didn't tell anyone I was going to get it. Like, I literally just... It was funny, because um, I woke up on, on the Saturday after the book had come out, and like a load of reviews had come out, and like most of them were really, really positive, and I was really happy, but I think what they don't tell you about books coming out, and I think you'll relate to a lot, is that you, no matter whether a good review is good or bad, the simple fact of people discussing you really disenfranchises you from yourself, I think. So this is something I think that I want to talk about in this podcast. Yeah. Because although I feel... I'm, I'm excited to see how this podcast goes, us discussing a novel that you wrote and that's dedicated to me. <laughs> yeah. But I think the thing that I want to talk about is the way it feels when a book you've written comes out. And yeah. how... We've both done it twice now, properly. Weirdly heartbreaking it is, and how vulnerable you feel all the time, and yeah. how you're supposed to feel so happy, and you feel so naked all the time. Even when someone says a nice thing, you think, I hate you for reading the book that I told you to read. Yeah. And how... People are both not discussing it and discussing it too much at the same time, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like having a birthday party or a wedding. It's just like, stop looking at me, look at me. Yeah. It's very Don't Make Me Sing. Don't Make Me Sing. Yeah, it's very that. Yeah, I remember this was like best expressed by um, our mutual friend and past podcast guest, Daisy Buchanan, who she published before either of us did. But she said to me on the day after her first book came out, she was like, I simultaneously want to rip it from everyone's hands and scream why it isn't on the six o'clock news. (laughs) And I thought that is a perfect summation of that of what it feels like. Um, Let's do the plot summary and then let's launch into why I dedicated this very lesbian book to you. Other than to apparently make the whole town talk. The whole town talk. (laughs) So, this is the plot summary of Amazon, because 
both of us felt too close to this novel to adequately re-summarise it for you. Yeah, it felt very, it felt very weird. Mm. It felt very much like wanking <clears> while <throat> looking at a picture of yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I also feel like that about this novel, which gives you some clue as to how intertwined the writing of this novel is with our friendship. I yeah, think. I think so. Okay. After a tough few years floundering around the British film industry, experimenting with amateur pornography and watching her father's health rapidly decline, Charlie and her best friend Laura journey to her ancestral home of Clippin, an island off the west coast of Ireland. She knows this could be the last chance to connect with her dad's history before she loses him. But when the girls arrive, Charlie begins to question both her difficult relationship with Laura and her father's childhood stories. Before long, she's embroiled in a devastating conspiracy that's been 60 years in the making, and it's up to her to reveal the truth. (laughs) At this point, I should say, I did not read to the end of the Amazon summary. It's up to her to reveal the truth. It's up to her, or is it? Or is it? But Carl, what a a Nancy Drew of a summary. I know, it really is. There's a part in this book where Laura, who is the best friend, as I've just said, uh, says to Charlie... Uh, look, now, look, Charlie, a clue, a clue. Nancy Drew and the Curse of the Button Bank. Yeah, it's very much like a book. It's a murder mystery um, with the main, where the main characters have sort of know too much about murder mysteries. And it's, I think, Which I think is fascinating, given that you know so little about murder mysteries. I really know so little about... It's not my genre at all. I know everything about murder mysteries. If yeah. I had to do a... If someone was like, what's your specialist subject? Yeah, Agatha Christie so, is your thing. Agatha Christie, Dorothy Sayers, all the classic Golden Age. Yeah. Marjorie Allingham. But also modern thrillers, of which I read so many. Yeah, and I read so so few. And I think the the weird thing about that is that, like, I think a lot of people, when they decide to write a kind of a a murder mystery or a pastiche on a murder mystery, (laughs) is that in Bruges quote? It's not so much an homage, it's a pastiche. Pastiche pastiche is too strong. (laughs) more like an homage is they probably know the genre extremely well and they're referencing that and I feel like a bit of an imposter when it comes to that because what this came out of was really it was like a desire to write about the sort of the many things we know and don't know about Ireland and also a desire to write something quite funny about like film festivals and like the, you've read so many drafts of this book and the initial drafts like half of it took place at various film festivals I mean I found my Kindle again the other day my life is a series of losing my Kindle and then finding out at mm-hmm. sort of six month intervals mm-hmm. I go, it's a real like on again off again long term love affair mm-hmm. my Kindle I would say is half drafts of this book yeah in various forms under different titles and just fully different constructions and the early drafts are entirely about film festivals, film festivals, and being a creative and making and films, making, art. making films when you're young and trying to make stuff. Yeah, it's re- it's really weird. And like my only experience, it's basically when I was um twenty three, and um, I I helped write a film called The Better Man, which. <laughs> Which um, I helped make with a few of my very good friends, one of which you're now dating, are we allowed to say? Which is a weird twist and I not for podcasting. I think we can put it on the podcast. It's not a secret. You know, you put that. You put pictures of a man on your Instagram like twice, yeah. pictures of a cat on your Instagram four times. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. The whole town's talking. The whole town's talking. And, um, and we spent a weekend going to... We, uh, we went to this Welsh Film Festival and... Um, I just found it such a bizarre experience, the sort of the various different characters. And also we had this very interesting experience where 
um, the first time we played our movie, it, the sound didn't work. And so what happened was... Oh. I know, it was awful. <laughs> the sound didn't work. And then what happened was um, uh, the next... They were like, look, we're really sorry about what happened with the sound. Um, but we would... Somebody had to drop out of the um, the main sort of gala event of the of the festival anyway, happening tomorrow night. Please stay around, come back tomorrow night. And then we ended up showing the, the festival to this like much better room. We ended up showing the film to a much like better room full of like half successful people. And I remember thinking in that moment in like 2012 or whatever, uh, like, oh, this is a good setup. This is a really good setup. So in the initial drafts of the book, it was that exact setup. It was like people going to a series of festivals and then the sort of divine chance allowing them to be at the thing. I always forget that. Yeah. It's weird. It's like, I think it's so weird because it's been all been cooking for so long and like the other big inspiration for this actually happened at a dinner party with you it did with yeah me and uh, my dead boyfriend you're dead to my alive boyfriend oh my god oh shit what was that um yeah <laughs> so weird both the inspirational events for this book happened with men you've slept with <laughs> so that is true yeah i mean something i'm just putting together for the first time yeah, and what, what happened was, and I know you remember this night very, very vividly. Um, first of all, because I've talked about and written about this, but second of all, because I think you, you would have remembered it anyway, um, which was... Yeah, I think it was, it felt like a moment. As it was, as we were having this moment, it felt like a moment. You know how sometimes in your life you get things and you're like, oh, this is the thing. Yeah. And this it, counts. It, 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 it was as well where like when you're in the room with... Everybody else in the room is also a writer. And like, oh, someone's going to use this. You know what I mean? <laughs> it did feel like that. It yeah. really did. So let's... So, yeah, it was... Yeah. So it was 2014. And um, so it must have been quite near that film festival time. So clearly I was just gathering a lot of ideas at that time. Particularly porous time for me. Which I do think is worth noting. That these things all happen in 2014. This book's come out in 2020. Ideas take time. They, they take percolate time. through. Yeah. Six years... It doesn't feel like that long. It feels... I mean, yeah. it feels like a lifetime ago if so much has happened since then. But... And it's funny, isn't it? Because sometimes you, you hear interviews with authors and they're like, oh, I wrote this book. I was, I've been writing this book for 10 years. And you go... And even as an author now, I'm like, wow, how could anyone spend that long on one thing? And like, would you go insane? But actually, it's like this... It's like this plate spinning in the back of your head that is... Yes. Covered in paint and spattering everywhere. <laughs> like a... More like a potter's wheel. Like yeah, clay going everywhere and occasionally you like put a finger in it like shapes it in a new direction and you're like woo yeah and there's just many potter wheels going at once yeah um, and so I was going over to dinner at your house and yeah. I had, I remember I was like quite late and I had a, I was still working in advertising at the time and very much in my business gear in my dowdy 20s business what we gear call, we called it your career my co- time yeah you always said oh Caroline's coming from career never her job from career I think because I was a student yeah. And John was working at Best for Film. Um, but because John was doing a job that felt like playing and I was a student. Yeah. It did feel like I was the only one who was like... Who was like, ooh, Caroline, she's worked in advertising and she's, she's, she's going places. <laughs> um, and I arrived and a bit harried and a bit hot. And I remember being really, it was like June, it was really, really warm. And um, the first thing John said to me when I came in the door was, have you heard about the babies? And... <laughs> Tact. Tact. But you know, obviously, when it's one of those things where you hear a story about where someone is from, and particularly where your friend is from, and you it's interesting and you immediately want to discuss it with them. And I still think that there is a more tactful way than did you hear about the baby? He wasn't a tactful man. 
R.I.P. But he was not a tactful man. And um, what it, it turned out to be was it was the the um, sort of scandal that happened in Tume in Galway, um, whereby a mass grave of children's remains was found next to a convent. And <laughs> it's one of those things that, although I've now known about this story for six years, yeah, and because of this book, largely have read so much about it, yeah, I've thought about it a lot. When you bring it. You bring it back to the absolute facts of it. Absolute fact. It is so appalling. Yeah. It's so breathtakingly horrible that you can't quite get your head around it. Yeah, it's kind of mind melting. And I remember that being the thing and it being like this simultaneous thing of like the facts of it were so mind melting and also the fact that I was on the back foot about it because I was the Irish person who should have Mm. probably read about it that day. And John knew who was English. It, I felt so uncomfortable and so embarrassed, and like I was supposed to provide some kind of context why the worst thing in the ha- world had happened, the place that was like two hours from where I'm from, you know? Yeah, and I think I remember I felt that it was very evident to me that you felt like that, that you felt immediately as if you had to defend yeah. the country and provide the explanation and talk about the church and how it gets into everything and this and that and all the explanations and I remember feeling oh, okay Caroline wants to yeah fight this corner and I remember John you know which is almost impossible man was sort of yeah. constantly trying to get out, get you to say things about it and you were very very you had a lot of personal feelings about it that weren't this is horrifying on a theoretical level yeah in that you were very like, Ireland is... I mean, the line that you've been saying for far longer than you've been writing this book, we have Topshop and Chemo and Saoirse Ronan. Yeah, yeah, I think as well, because like, it sounds so weird to say, because I immigrated in 2011, and that was a little less than 10 years ago, but it was still a different place then. Ireland was culturally, internationally known as a different place. We had just had, like months after I had immigrated, the Salvita Habavanar thing of this, yep. um, this, this woman who died in childbirth because she was refused ter- termination in Ireland. There, this huge recession had happened, and like it was one of many recessions Ireland had had, so we were seen as both being backwards and irresponsible and sort of I felt I really felt that the stereotype was at that time very alive of like this is a backwater um and I felt really defensive I felt really ashamed and I felt like I spent a lot of my time in my the early years in London in this sort of like thing of um telling people that Ireland wasn't what they thought it was and that actually it was very modern and it was a cosmopolitan place and like I, I think because people would always ask me what village I was from or whether I grew up on a farm, all these very like weird coded questions that showed that they only knew a certain thing about Ireland. And so I would go really hard on, it's a city. I'm from a city. Cork's a city, which it is. <laughs> the thing is, I very, very vividly remember our early friendship being full of you telling me over and over again you were from a city and me being like, all right, some of us are from villages. Let's leave it. Cities on that green Yeah, line. yeah. And not really getting why until later. I think I still kept on being a bit like, she's obsessed with the fact she's from a city. <laughs> is this a yeah. city? Is this a city person thing or just a Caroline thing? I think you've Yeah, been... it must have been weird. It, it was very weird because oddly. I had never had a conversation with you about you being from a village. But I think you were so braced. When did I meet you? 2012? Yeah. Very early 2013? 
um, I was, but I think you were so braced by a year of living in England for people to be yeah. like, what village are you from? How many fairies do you know? How many fairies do you know? Exactly. And like, I remember a conversation I had with um, my ex-boyfriend's father's friend. It was like a very much a... Oh, oh the oh. boyfriend's father's friend. Yeah. Not the boyfriend's father's friend. It was very much a garden party where everyone's standing up eating from plates, you know, like... And, and um, he said, "Some the pandemic will kill those off." <laughs> I hope so. I hope no more boyfriends, fathers, friend in in the new world. Um, and he said something to me about some some bailout that was happening. I can't remember some economical measure that was being taken mm-hmm. to deal with Ireland or the EU bailing out Ireland or something like that. And I was like, "Yeah, yeah." And he was like, "Oh well, if you get if you give a child a credit card, they will buy sweets." <gasps> and I remember feeling like. Oh, a racism is happening to me. <laughs> racism to me? To me? A white? <laughs> but no, obviously, like, that's, you know, you know, it, it sticks yeah. with you. It, that, stuff like that sticks Give with you. Give a child you. a credit card and they will buy sweets. Yeah. Like, like a 50-odd man, to 50-odd-year-old man to a 22-year-old is a weird fucking vibe. It's a fairly terrible thing to say, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I'm really sorry that he said that to you. It's fine. And like, this is so off the topic of... Except that it isn't, actually. It's not, maybe, yeah. what we're talking about in this book really is identity and nationalism and what it feels like to be Irish and to think that you're Irish and to feel Irish, but to have been born in Britain. And I think there's something very interesting about the fact that you chose to write about an Irish person... I mean, she's technically Irish, I guess, but her mum yeah. is English. Yeah, she, she's got an Irish father. She's second generation. She's second generation, but in some crucial ways is not Irish, and in some crucial ways is Irish. Mm. And the way she is seen is very different, depending on who's looking at her. Mm-hmm. And so I think the give a child a credit card thing is very valid, because what you're talking about there is someone looking at you and being like, well, she's Irish, but she's probably not Irish enough to mind this. Yeah. Yeah. And her Irishness is somehow not the kind of Irishness where I feel bad about saying to her, give a child a credit card and they will buy sweets. Yeah, yeah. Which is an insane thing to say. He wouldn't have said that to an Irish man. No. But then again, that was like a very specific... Which is odd, actually, because I do think the reactions to Irishness is a very, particularly in England, a very class-based thing because, like... That particular man, that particular set that I was in the garden of, was a very, um, very upper middle class Daily Mail reading kind of like we worked very hard to get what we have, and now people are trying to take it away kind of mindset. Mm. Whereas a number of years later, and this is I'm just comparing boyfriend meetings of like going to a barbecue in Gavin's family's house, and his his family are all, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to bitch out my ex boyfriend. He's a lovely man too. Or the class he comes from. But um, very working class, very Essex, very like one generation removed from uh, some kind of Irish parentage or Scottish parentage or Welsh parentage themselves. And um, I remember his aunt coming up to me and saying, The fucking famine, darling, we're so sorry. (laughs) The way we treated you lot was bloody criminal. And I was like, yeah. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I remember thinking it was the most endearing thing ever. And it was like actually one of the first and only times a person of an older generation has like tried to individually reckon with colonialism with me. 
It's just lovely. I have never heard that story. I mean, I am such a sucker for you doing an English accent. Thank you. Your various accents of people we know or people we see in the park are very charming. <laughs> um, Thank you, I heard. Um, but yeah, so so definitely this is all bringing us up to that dinner in your house where having a variety... And I, I think people do forget this, but I think the current idea of Ireland is that of like, oh, it's like a like a Sweden you want to go party with. You know, it's like, oh, they're really liberal and fun. And it's been a real turnaround. It's been a turnaround. But like even nine years ago, that was different. Yeah, that's what I mean. It's been a real... Yeah. And it's, I... been, it's been gradual, but very rapid. Ireland's very, very on the up and up. It's like a New Zealand. It's a Sweden. It's a... Yeah, it's very culturally um, hot right now as well. There's a lot of stuff coming out of Ireland that a lot of people are watching and reading and that's great for me <laughs> because it means there's interest in work about it, which is lovely. Top 10 Sally Rooney's. You want Sally Rooney? <laughs> <laughs> I am one of the top 10 Sally Rooney's that isn't Sally Rooney. That's true. Um, and uh, that was, yeah, very different in 2014. And part of what led us to this conversation, which I think probably would have been among the first in our relationship where we talked about nationality and nationhood and, and lostness and then we ended up talking about Aberfan which was for people who don't know do you want to explain that very quickly uh yeah it was a disaster in Wales in the 60s 60s yeah where essentially the slag heap so all the waste from a coal coal mine had been piled up in a tip on top of a uh, on top of a small mountain stream and as you would expect when you put a great deal of rubble on top of a stream. Eventually mm. it fell down and it fell on a school. And wiped out basically a generation. Wiped out a generation. And the teachers. And the teachers. And I th- and you, you read from that beautiful Laurie Lee essay. Yes, from I Can't Stay Long, which is his essay collection. I love Laurie Lee. I think he's, you know, problematic in the way that all men of two generations ago were problematic when they were writing. But... His essay about Aberfan, which... Do you remember the title? I can't remember the title. No, and I, it's actually not available online anywhere, so I've looked for Is it, it not? since. Oh, yeah. I would have, brought the, would have brought the book if I'd known. Yeah, I've read it a few times in your house, but um, not... Yeah. It's a very beautiful and sad essay, which was written almost immediately afterwards. I think it's about eight months afterwards he goes to the town, and all the journalists have left, and he talks about the massive stockpile of soft toys that were sent by everyone across the country but all the children were dead Mm. and he talks about the huge amounts of money that were raised but again all the children were dead there were no there weren't there's no fund do you mean there's no fund it's not like when a mine collapses and you have to support the family because they've lost the miners income or something it's kids it's that there's no financial loss when children die and that's there's something there's no money that can mend it that's the other thing I think is that and I, the bit I remember, and I think the bit that really is at the heart of this book is a bit where Laurie Lee talks about coming across groups of surviving children. Yeah. And talking about how they're cycling on beautiful, very expensive, polished tricycles and they're all wearing ribbons in their hair and they're mm. all so looked after and they're so lonely. Yeah. And everybody looks at them like they're both monsters and treasures. Yeah, yeah. Because there's just a handful of them left. And all the rest are dead. Yeah. The whole town is full of dead children. And we were talking about that. And we were talking about 
the two babies. Yeah, and I can literally, it's so weird. I, can, I feel very goosebumpy now because it just feels very transporting. I feel like... Beribboned, I think, is the word that always takes yes, me back there. Yes, beribboned. Beribboned. Little groups of surviving children. Here yeah. and there you come across little groups of surviving children beribboned and on expensive tricycles or something like that. Yeah. And... And that very much... Those two things together, yeah. I think. The film festival... And this conversation about Hume and the fact that I went to that essay about Laurie Lee, mm-hmm. that essay by Laurie Lee rather, I think are the three kind of triangle points that this novel rests on. Yeah. Even though, I, and I think then it takes them to other places to do with being a lesbian and intense female friendships and growing up. And loss of a parent. And loss um... of a parent. And I think that's, those the other, that's the other thing I think we should mention when we're talking about where this novel comes from, which I don't think any interviewer is ever going to ask you about, Mm -hmm. which is the fact that John died when John was ill all the way through. You were thinking of this novel. Mm -hmm. And then he died two years ago, two and a half years ago. Yeah. At the same time, just after your granddad died. It was a bad couple of months. Yeah, it was really bad. But When you say when your granddad died, and I think... I think it's interesting when we talk about grandparent death I think that can mean so many different things to so many different people like I think of my grandmother dying when I was a teenager and I think yeah that was a normal like that's that was sad but it was a normal thing for a person to go through mm-hmm. and I think of my grandfather dying and it like it still sort of shakes me a bit even though he was 93 or something it was just mm-hmm. like he was just a huge figure in all of our lives in this way that I find hard to to even quantify and then to have him die and then to have his name was oddly John and then to have our John die and I was just like just these two huge men in my life both gone in fresh out months. of John's in four months yeah fresh out of John's and yeah I think it's important to note and I don't know whether anyone will when they ask you about this book mm. this book came out of so much grief and death yeah and I know that people haven't really asked you if this one's autobiographical in a way that Promising Young Women, your first book, mm. everyone wanted to know. So did you fuck your boss? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was that was a Obviously, really... magic isn't real, but did you? <laughs> yeah, it's, and I think that that would have happened anyway because I think that's what people ask debut authors. And I think that's... I mean, people get really um, snitty about it, but like, I think it's a fair enough question. Do you know what I mean? Like, if we strip back of politics, like, yeah, fine. Your debut, like, it's probably going to be built on a somewhat of a autobiographical thing where in reality the only thing that was autobiographical about promising young women was the fact that she worked in advertising yeah almost everything else was different i never had an affair with the boss i certainly had opportunities to which was kind of it was more like a choose your own adventure what if i had said yes kind of thing because that's what advertising is like if you're a young woman in that kind of industry you will get the opportunity, whether you've realised it or not. You might realise years later that you had that opportunity or that you were presented that. But anyway, people were constantly asking whether it's autobiographical. People have not asked that about this book because the lead character is a lesbian and I'm not a lesbian because she's English and I'm not English um, because she has a dying parent and I, touch wood, do not have a dying parent. Um... And so people have just been like, oh, good for you in your imagination. And sure, like, good for me in my imagination. But I think, like, what with all all novelists sort of experience to a point is, like, 
the things might not have happened, but it's still very much based in a personal truth. Most so a thing I've been thinking of as I kind of I'm working on my next books, some of which are memoir and some of which are not. Is there's a Stuart Lee quote, and I know you're not big on Stuart Lee, where he tells this. Yes, I do love the story. (laughs) He tells this very very elaborate story about Richard Hammond. Mm -hmm. Richard Hammond, former co-presenter of Top Gear, bit of a weaselly man. He tells this story about having been at school with him. And this story goes on for so long. And how... Like all three stories. Stuart Lee was working in the library and he gave Richard Hammond this place to hide. And... Hi. Sorry, the dog is... The dog is trying to get our attention. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalised card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com I'm really sorry, the dog interrupted that story. Mm. So he's telling this very long, involved story about Richard Hammond and how Stuart Lee was working in the library and Richard Hammond was being bullied and Stuart Lee looked after him for a whole term and they got on really well and they talked about books and then Richard Hammond turned around in the next term and uh, accused him of being gay (laughs) and was hanging out with some bigger boys. And as you can hear, the whole crowd being like, oh, wow, can't believe I didn't know. And Stuart Lee just says, now that story about Richard Hammond is not true. What it tells us about Richard Hammond is very true. <laughs> that's so, that's been, all novels, I think. I've been thinking a lot lately yeah. about this story is not true, but what it tells us yeah. is true. And this story about scenes of a graphic nature about Caroline O'Donoghue is not true. What it tells us about Caroline O'Donoghue <laughs> is, is true. true. <laughs> that's very that's very good. So yeah. the thing for me when we were talking about the idea of doing this podcast, which we both wanted to do and I was very, I, I guess, kind of not sure of how it would work on the basis that I don't feel really very qualified to ask you questions about this book. This book for me is so tied up with you and with me and mm. with, you wrote in my proof copy that you know where every, basically every scene in this book, where we discussed it in the park. Yeah. And reading that plot summary earlier, I felt very strongly like, wow, that what they think happened? Weird. Mm. All right. <laughs> Do what yeah. you want, but if if this if this book were a film, you would be like, it would be like a film by Caroline Donahue, executive producer Ella Respiger. Do you know what I mean? That yeah. would be the credits on it. <laughs> that is fair. Yeah, I feel very hands on about this book. But what I really mean is, I feel that every scene in this book is so closely tied to the conversations we had around it mm. and the things that were happening in our lives at the time. Yeah, you know, I don't. I didn't really mean to talk about this, but I think it is worth saying that this is a little bit about what happens when a death gets taken out of your hands. Yeah. When... Yes, Sylph, it's very sad. very sad. It was a really sad time, Sylph. You're allowed to cry. (laughs) And... Not that much. Let me finish this emotional... Get get a fucking grip, Sylph. Um... And so we're kind of talking about this background of grief for this book, about grief and these kind of events that were happening around the writing of it. And I think also we need to talk about the fact that 
this is kind of a book about what happens when you lose control of a death or when you're trying to keep control of somebody who's dying and you're trying to keep control of things that are really beyond human control because Charlie's response is to flee because yeah. her dad is ill and there's this part where her mum is ringing her and you know that it's because her dad needs her. Yeah. And she yeah. just ignores it. But it's also this thing where, like, with Charlie, it's, um, we meet her in, and somebody, I had a meeting about this book the other day and somebody said, the, in the beginning of the book is very much hospital rooms and it's like somebody said to me, she was like, I could just really tell how tired everyone was. Oh God, we were so tired. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that that sort of the mind numbing boredom that goes on for years at a time when several people are involved in one person's terminal illness. Yeah. Even if they don't know it's terminal illness, and it's just like the 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 dwindling, the watching, the wasting, which yeah. I don't want to talk too much. So I know those get too upset. But um, uh, and then when Charlie gets the sort of like golden ticket to to Willy Wonka's factory, which is Ireland to her, that's what her Willy Wonka's factory is. Yeah. It's it's a way out. It's an escape. It's something that yeah. has nothing to do. It's nothing to do with her dad that's dying. It has to do with her dad, who is a young man who's escaping. Yeah, it's to do with her dad being the boy who lived. Yes, and for people who haven't read this book but are listening to this podcast anyway, that is basically the premise of this film that Charlie has made that she's debuting at these film festivals, which is that he was involved in this freak accident. He lived, you know, um, and and so she's like she gets to and she doesn't have to engage with the the horrible, wrenching boredom of, of terminal illness in the present, she gets to deal with the r- ridiculous chance of the past, you know, and destiny and sexier things, you know? And I, yeah, I think that's something that doesn't get talked about in books very often, is that this book is kind of an anticlimax. Yeah. The climax of this book is like, it's really sad, but terrible things happen. Yeah. And I don't think we can get away from the fact. There's not really a ta da moment, is there's there? There's not a ta da moment. The ta da moment happens on that. I don't think we actually need to completely spoil it for people no. who haven't read it, but the ta da moment happens really right at the very end. And it's just a sad man saying, okay, look, I'll tell you what happened if you'll just stop now. Yeah. I will give you the f- straight facts if you will leave everything alone. Yeah. And I think that there is something to be said for the fact that while you were writing this book, we had to do a lot of facing up to, well, that's that bit. That's not great. Mm. Okay. And in some sense, it makes me feel like this book is very autobiographical. I feel that this book is more autobiographical than Mm. Promising Young Women. And I was your friend through the writing and the events that led up to both. Yeah. Promising Young Women, I feel, is very... It's cute, you know? I love yeah. women. It is. For, it's weird because it's sometimes like... And also, I should say, we're talking a lot about grief and tragedy. It's also quite a funny, light-hearted book about friendship as well. Do you know what I mean? There's a lot of jokes in it. There's a lot of one-liners. There are a ton of jokes in it. I don't think it's light-hearted. <laughs> okay. I don't think it's light-hearted at all, really. I think it's yeah. funny. I think it's very darkly funny. I think there are some very, very good jokes in it. There are a lot of references to Nancy Drew, which I think is important. I think it might be interesting to talk a bit about how this book came to be written, how you actually wrote this book, and how much of it felt like you and I were collaborating on trying to make sense of our own worlds by talking a lot about this fictional world. Yeah. Which I think maybe is unusual. I don't know enough about how other people write, but I think 
the way you and I write to varying degrees and in varying ways mm-hmm. is that you are my colleague and I am your colleague. Mm-hmm. And we talk a lot about the shapes of books and the stories of books. And I think particularly with this one, everybody in Scenes of Graphic Nature was so alive to both of us. Mm. I mean, when I was, as I say, when I was reading the Amazon summary, it felt like someone describing my friends in a weird, brisk, made-for-TV movie. It was like... Ugh. That's kind of how, can she solve it before it's too late? That's not Charlie's deal. She's not trying to solve yeah. it. She just wants to belong. Yeah. And I feel very strongly about there's things I can't even remember now whether they're in this book or whether we just talked there's about. There's been so them. many drafts. Yeah. And when, so when I I wrote that first draft, and it was vividly different to the the draft that is now in circulation, which is the finished version. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird. They're all just drafts, aren't they? Um, and there was no dying father. There was also a brother character. There was much more of um of them in England. There was less of them in Cork. There was um uh, there was a, a bit where I I sort of decided for a minute that maybe she could see the past and future. There was like a, a touch of magical realism. I forgot the magic. There was a priest with Alzheimer's. There was all kinds of stuff going on. Um, I the priest. I know, I know, it's mad. And um, then I remember. I gave the draft to my editor, Sarah Savage, who's a genius, and, you know, my, my closest collaborator after you, and, <laughs> and she said, lots to love here. <laughs> I really liked the dog. I really like, I mean, this is not, this is not a shade on Sarah Savage. She's just one of those um, very tactful, elegant editor's meetings where you only realise about six months later that they didn't really like it very much at all. Which is exactly the editor you want. So she just makes you excited to redraft, but she doesn't actually let you know how poor it actually is. Which it was quite poor, I think. Um, and you were then going through some stuff. I was going through some stuff. I had some stuff to get out, and that's what the first draft is for. But then I think, do you remember that thing? I think it was Sarah who wrote on your. Uh, we're always quoting things Sarah said about you, yeah. <laughs> and then Sarah's like, "Hmm, did I?" Yeah, it's true. <laughs> the thing about. I think you needed to write this, but I don't know if anyone else needs to read it. She actually wrote that about promising young women. Yeah. That's the advice I give to most people now. And I think about that constantly. Yeah. You needed to write it, but we don't need to read it. But I remember... So I did what all writers do, which I put it in a drawer for a little while. And I think I I went away and I promoted Promising Young Women for like a summer, which was a very lovely summer, um, back when you could still promote your book in public. Um, And then I came back to it in like October, reread the whole thing. This is 2018 now, so this shows kind of like how long percolating and writing actually takes. And then and I realised what needed to change. I probably still have the list somewhere. I basically, the way I did it was like, and this is probably good writing advice for anybody who's redrafting a book, is like you, you locate the problem and then you write as many things as you could possibly think of that could happen. Until you literally run out of ideas. To the point where you're really forcing it. Like maybe they all are secretly dogs. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and you have it. I remember I had this like long list. It was like 14 items long. And then at the end of it. It was like the dad is dying. And the time is running out. And that's why. And that's why she needs to figure out now. Because once he's dead. That sort of connection will be gone. Because she'll be. First she'll be too sad to go to the island. And then it'll. Then basically everybody will start to die. And do you know what yeah. I mean? And like basically you need to do it now or never. And then I remember, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but we had a really, at that point you had read everything I had written 
of this book and it was kind of the thing we were going through I remember some... exa- I know exactly what you're about to say and I know exactly where I was yeah and we, we were having this really really grim time because John had died and it was kind of this was the thing that we were talking about that wasn't that and it was like this fiction I think that's why we got so invested in it in a way it hasn't been true of like other things that we've been working on because it was just a fiction it was like almost like how people feel about D&D you know what I mean well that's exactly it I feel so strongly about these characters because they were almost like escape escape pods yeah. for us we when we had like talked out all the shit that was happening with John and there when... was nothing else to say about it the thing the real thing you have to know about when someone is dying is that there comes a point where you have said everything you can possibly say when someone's been dying for three years yeah you've said all your big what will happen it's like well yeah you've thought about so many contingencies and you've, and you've said really all your big goodbyes yeah. You've said your big goodbyes. And you've soothed so and you've self soothed and you've soothed each other and And you've said everything calming you can possibly say. And it gets to a point and I suspect this is true of any when anyone's been dying for a prolonged period of time. Yeah. Which John was, he was dying for years. Mm-hmm. There is nothing more you can say about the dying. Yeah. The update is, well, not today. Yeah. Yeah. But probably not. And so, and so it, it became, it, yeah, I, I think that's the first time I've ever thought about that, but like, it was like a Dungeons and Dragons, wasn't it? It was like, it was I, I, was, I was Dungeon Master, and you were playing with me, kind of thing. Yeah. And you'd invent a scenario, or sometimes I would invent a scenario, you know, yeah. I think a lot about the Tai Chi scene at the end of this book, where I was so insistent, like, no, Caroline, They're it's doing a Tai Chi, chi class. I remember trying totally. to show you, like, Tai I Chi. I remember you literally in this room, and you, like, put down everything, and you started, like, doing Do, the movements doing tai chi. as you were narrating the scene, and I was like, yes, yes. But then when, like, when I realised, when I got to the end of that list, and I was like, oh, the dad is dying, mm. and then I said it to you, and you were like, I don't think I can play this game. I, play this game anymore. I was on a train at Newcross Station, and I read it and was like, "Oh no, the yeah. game is over." Yeah, she's brought the bad game in. She's yeah. brought the bad she's thing made in. Made this book about death. Um, and I still feel that way to an extent. There is still, I think, part of me that's a bit like, I find that first chapter still quite hard to read. Mm-hmm. I tend to read it quite fast. That bit about boy who lived and the bit in the hospital yeah i still find that hard i mean i tend to avoid hospital content Mm -hmm. generally less than i used to yeah and i think as well because um i am not somebody who's good like you're very good at like diagnosing your own feelings in the moment 10 years of therapy my friend yeah like you have a feeling and then you like take it apart you just strip it for parts like immediately and then you put it back together and that is not... I don't really process things in the same way. No, you do no, not. I do not. And it's kind of... It's more like soil creep. And it's just sort of... happens very slowly. And that's okay. But because of that, it, this sort of... Um, as well, you know, there's a limit of people you can really discuss grief with kind of thing. Where, like, the only person who you've really felt like you've been through this thing with is, is the person who's suffering more than you. You're not really going to be like, well, let me process my feelings about your boyfriend at you. And so it tends to... So for me, this book became the main place where I did that, I think. Yeah, I think so. And I think it was... I think there was a while there where it was difficult for us to process our grief together because we both... Really, you were the only person in the last year of John's life. It was you and me. Yeah. And Gavin just had a weeping woman on his sofa and in the spare room... 75% of the time 
and our other friends were quite dispersed and quite diffuse and it was yeah. just really it became this very intense pressure cooker yeah of you and me just trying to get through this every day yeah and I think that made it when the lid came off the pressure cooker and John died hard for us for a while to kind of talk to each other about everything that had happened because it meant looking the enormity of everything that had been in yeah, the previous I think, year I think in the face so. and I think it was easier for you just kind of process everything fictionally and very slowly and be like I'm not having these feelings it's actually Charlie having these feelings <laughs> no yeah it's very true very true whereas I I really now I look back and it was kind of too shattered yeah. I would like I kind of wish we had someone here who didn't know who could talk to yeah, us about well, their feelings. Yeah, like a moderator or something. A moderator to say their feelings on scenes of a graphic nature. Yeah. Because that was always going to be the interesting thing about this podcast. Yeah. Is that you and I are both so personally, intimately bound up mm. in... I feel like this is less like a... Um, to do with this novel. Less a discussion of the, of the plot of the novel. There, it's more like a director's commentary on the DVD. <laughs> <laughs> Which was always, I think, going to be the case because... As I say, there's not that... M- I feel very odd about asking about... So my grandma just asked me whether I liked it. Yeah, your grandmother has a lot of thoughts. My grandmother has a lot of thoughts about Scenes of Graphic Nature by Carolyn O'Donoghue. Mm-hmm. Most of them good. <laughs> Some of them... Love a fair review. Most of them very good. She thought the writing was uh, very good. Uh, she's a bit perplexed about some of the things that Charlie does to herself. I Which suspect... Is, fair enough. I suspect that's the amateur porn. Didn't like to ask. Um, Amateur porn, I think, is a um, a real marmite thing about this book for a lot of people. What's the feedback you've had on uh, Charlie's porn? So, for context, um, uh, Charlie is a is an amateur filmmaker um, who is living in London and also working in a cafe. And also, her flatmate, who shared this kind of one room studio with her, Laura, has recently moved out. And to me, that's like I first of all, I hate reading a book where somebody's the way they make money is unclear and they're doing things they can't afford and it really ruins the book for me that's really interesting um and so then i was like okay so how how is she able to make money how is she able to move quite fluidly through the world um yes she's broke but there's a limit to brokenness she's like it's very hard that's why like if you ever watched the show frasier frasier's a perfect character because he does one hour of work a day at the radio station and then he just doesn't do one um and so it's like process of elimination. Oh, and I finally reached it. I was like, oh, of course. She is good with the camera. She doesn't really care about her sexual. Like she's a lesbian, but she sort of has a kind of a level of not like flagrancy about sexuality, mm. where she's sort of dispossessed from it. Yes, and I also think that's very interesting. She's she is weirdly disconnected from everything except Laura. Yeah, and that's one thing I love about this book is that yeah. it has a happy ending. It does. It does. It has such a happy ending. It has a lesbian happy ending, which... Doesn't happen a lot. Doesn't happen a lot. She meets... Ultimately, spoiler, she meets a hot girl and they kiss loads and then they live together. Yeah. Spoiler. It's really nice. And other things happen too. Yeah. Bad things. Good things. Other bad things. But she does meet this hot girl and they're really nice (laughs) together and they like each other loads. And although it's not like easy, easy, they do ultimately end up together for the long term. Yeah. And that's just the thing that happens. A nice, I think it's nice. happy ending. Yeah, I feel really um, relaxed sort of thinking about them having their nice life. <laughs> I just, I was so worried about Charlie. 
Yeah. For years, I wor- I literally was worried about Charlie like a friend who kept making bad choices. I know. And and the porn is one of those choices where it's like... Oh, you're just like, oh, yeah. Charles. Char- Charles. <laughs> so Charlie so Charles. She, she makes a decision to start doing porn and... It's actually one of the things, it was, weirdly, because this I started writing this book in like 2017. It had been percolating since 2014. Um, it's the thing that has dated the most quickly is the porn in the book. Because now, like OnlyFans in the last sort of year and a half has become very, very common. And like the OnlyFans as well, I think for a large portion of like sort of young, cosmopolitan, quite like lefty, quite right on, quite internet savvy women has now become like a very viable way of making income. I think for a small sliver of the population, yes, but like but, the yeah. hang-ups that, she, that Charlie has in this book, I think are slightly outdated now, just because that landscape has moved so quickly. It really has moved very, very quickly. Yeah. Which is an interesting discussion I really don't feel qualified to get in on. The ways that sex work has kind of become more mainstream, and although I'm not really on Twitter, I saw there was a lot of the other week about some celebrity joining OnlyFans and charging thousands and thousands of pounds. Yeah. And yeah. it basically, lots of people worrying it was going to ruin the infrastructure. Yeah. And... In a way that people often worry about podcasting, actually, yeah. Really? Because you get, like... And I get it. And um, because you get people like... Um, huge like your David Tennant or your Michelle Obamas or whatever who basically like get paid thousands and thousands and thousands to sort of do these podcast deals with these big studios they just look at their little black book of famous friends and then they ultimately get to the top of the charts immediately they're in the front of Apple and iTunes and meanwhile the people who kind of are plugging away who don't have contacts are like well maybe this was our art form and I totally get it same with I guess same with OnlyFans yeah um but it has changed, and I think Charlie would have fewer of those hang-ups today, although, you know, how old is she, 28, 29? She's 29, yeah. 29. That's the thing, it's actually a lot to do with age as well, because... And I re- that was an interesting change from your first draft to your second draft, was yeah. Charlie's age. Yeah, because she began it at... The first draft, she was 22. Which, baby, a baby, 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 baby girl. And I think, again, it was Sarah Savitt who was like, well, why would she have to stop living like this? Yeah, that's the thing. She said, um, it's very hard to care about things that happen to 22-year-olds. <laughs> and I was like, you're right. You're absolutely right. She should be... Po-. The thing is, being a struggling artist who makes porn on the side at 22 is quite glamorous. Ultimately, it's quite glamorous. It's quite glamorous. But doing that as you're pushing 30 where everybody else is getting married I think is a different vibe. I'm not I'm saying it's worse or better. I'm just saying it's a different fucking vibe. And I think, actually, this is the thing we were talking about as we were eating our dinner earlier, mm-hmm. is that the older you get, the more your years seem to count. Yeah. There's a sort of free pass to being yeah, a little bit dilettante at 23. Everyone's like, well, obviously you're 23. Yeah, do what you want. Yeah. Do what you want. Make your decisions later. And every year that passes, it gets a little bit more like, but other people have made their decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the age where other people have made the decisions is getting older. As generation by generation, you know, I think a couple of generations ago, I was like, well, you're 21. Yeah, Everyone you want to know what you're doing, yeah. Everyone else has got a job and a house and a wife. But I still think that pressure is there. Mm. Which is the, the main part of the dynamic of Charlie and Laura, really. Yeah, is that Laura has, for better or worse, chosen. Yeah. She's decided that she doesn't want this. And what's interesting about Laura as well is that she's chosen quite late. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause she, not even late, but like 
So she at the beginning of the book, she's just she's twenty nine as well, but she's just moved out to to live with her boyfriend, who's also in film, and they're living this quite bougie little shortage life together. And she's twenty nine, but like up until that point, her and Charlie have been living together. They live together in a massive house share in Clapham, full of artists. And then they were just like, let's just share just a flat the two of us, and they were doing this very starving artist thing. And so at that point, you almost think, and I've heard this from a lot of like friends who have had like their best friend is also single for example and they're like this is our kind of household together this is our thing and like then one of them suddenly just like now I'm married now I have a baby goodbye <laughs> kind of thing and someone's like a snapping of the briefcase and the other one's like what like but we had an agreement you know and that's very much like I think Charlie thought that Laura was kind of in it for life really yeah, and I think that breaking of the agreement which is never an agreement you know everything yeah, it's changes. an assumption Everything changes and Charlie doesn't want anything to change. Mm. Charlie really doesn't want things to change. And you know, but Charlie herself changes all the way through the novel. She's a real... Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you get a character who starts as they end up. But Charlie very much kind of... She softens towards her mum. She manages to get back for her dad. Mm. She finds Maria. She moves on. She becomes yeah, a person. And I... I worry a little bit that it sounds like what we're saying is to grow up you have to find a partner. Mm. Which is not, I think, what either of us mean. No, no it isn't. But I do think there's this kind of extended adolescence where Charlie is not thinking about her effect on others. She is not thinking about existing in the world with anybody else except Laura, really. Mm. There's this bit where her mum leaves her credit card out just with a poster on that says, for flights. Mm. And Charlie's just like, that bitch, I'll never win. <laughs> yeah. It's like, she's giving you the money. Like, she, and like, it's made clear that her mum's had to reduce her hours at work so she can look after her dad who's dying. And Charlie's still just like, that bitch. She's giving me the money, but in a way yeah. that makes me feel like this is money she can't really afford. It's like, she can't. She can't afford it, yeah. But there's also all this stuff where it's like, Charlie's very hard on her mother, but her mother's very hard on her as well in ways that are like quite right. insidious. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, leave her alone! Uh, no, but there's this bit where it's like, um, she gets this, at the very beginning of the novel, she gets this letter from the Cork Film Festival and it's like, oh wow, in, in three weeks we're going to be at the thing, you know, they've the, been included in this sort of new Voices of Ireland category. And she's like, oh, wow, this is amazing. And her mom's like, oh, three weeks, who dropped out? You know? And it's that that thing of like, why can't you let me have this? You know? Yeah, but then this is not a novel with very many likeable characters. And I think there's a big debate about likability, particularly with women writers at the moment. Yeah, what is that about? Because people are always like, oh, this character isn't very likable. But it's like, who are the likable characters? Like, point Who to are the, the likable people? Yeah, right? When point you can see the... inside their brains, you know, who in the world would be likable when you could see yeah. all the mean things they think about people and all the, like, all the little pettinesses and all the little like, well, fuck her then. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm quite nice, but I have a million mean thoughts a day. Mean, small, petty, unjustified thoughts. Just like, ugh, why is she in front of me in the queue? Yeah. Like, you know? And that's, and that's like very much most novels is following one or two characters as they have their minds. mean thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> and so I find this question of likability quite interesting. But I do think this, this novel is full of people who are really particularly unpleasant. Yeah. 
or maybe nuanced is the polite way to say it. Mm-hmm. But Charlie's, as she says herself, a ball of toxic gas. There's this bit in the novel, which has been in there since the first draft, where Charlie tries to pet a lamb that she sees through a fence and the lamb runs away. And she thinks, yes, you should run away from me. A cloud of toxic gas. And it's like, baby, it's, it's just so a lamb. Melodramatic. It's a sheep. It's just baby, a lamb. the lamb's going back to its mother. Yeah. It's not you. It is. And she's like, I am toxic poison. Ireland rejects me. Yeah. Which, I think the Ireland Rejects Me thing is interesting, given how worried you were about yeah. being an Irish person writing about Ireland, and you were very personally worried mm. that you would be somehow misrepresenting Ireland, or that people would be angry with you for saying things about Ireland that weren't true. And I find that very interesting in a novel about nationality, yeah. that you spent so much time worrying Am I entitled to say these things about Ireland? And like we can talk about this now because it's been very well reviewed by the Irish press. It has. So well reviewed by raves, the Irish press. Raves across the board. Raves across the board. By the book. Raves across the board. And now that's happened, I feel like we can... We can really parse why I was so paranoid that I, I, the Irish press in particular were going to hate it. I feel like I spent a not insignificant proportion of 2019 walking around Greenwich Park with you, explaining to you that even if everybody in... Ireland who read the book hated it that would still be a statistically small number of people compared to the number of people in the world <laughs> I do remember that I yes. remember literally doing like you really back of a the cigarette packet maths to be like this is like point naught 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 three percent of like, the world's first population all, the percentage of Ireland it. who are going to buy your book quite negligible the percentage of people who are going to read it quite negligible <laughs> the people who have bought it read it and then written to you to tell you they hate it rather than just putting it back on the library shelf I remember doing these numbers for you and being like, yeah. that's like 50 people. You can cope with 50 people thinking you don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it was very sane and sound reasoning. I would like to say that I didn't just go straight to, okay, so presuming you're right and they hate it. I had done a lot of, they, they won't hate it. it. Yeah. It's a beautiful, meaningful novel. Actually, I was looking for that recipe. For, do you remember that sausage pasta bake? Yeah. I thought I'd written it down to you, so I searched our text for it, but unfortunately mm. I just said... Oh, that recipe, I'll ring you, give me one sec. Which was useless of me. But what also I had said that day was, if you're still upset about this fucking book, let me explain to you why it's very good. <laughs> so I did a lot of that. But I think we should talk about... Mm. Why were you so frightened? I think... I thought, I thought about this a lot as well, because it was such an outsized response. Um, to the point where I, I went to therapy for the first time in my life, because I was, I was literally waking up in the morning and going to bed thinking about how much people were going to hate it and and it was like taking it was taking up so much space in my brain and I think that was like um the reason that was that first of all because I had made I'd written it while grieving yes it felt like that even though there was almost nothing memoiric autobiographical rather at all in this novel that it was just streaked with the greasy tears but but then like so it felt like it was this this deeply vulnerable document that that where I was incredibly vulnerable in it and I'd never really been vulnerable in writing before I've I'd written about personal things but always with this veil of like happy go lucky lady on it mm, yeah and um then so that was like so I felt way too on the back foot about that and then because 
I had been living out of the country for a long time and because I was asking all these big questions of Ireland in the book, um, I felt like I was passing judgment. I felt like I was going to be... The, the, the response nationally was going to be like, you have rendered the country incorrectly. Um, which is so ironic because that's the literal fear of Charlie in the book. Because she makes this film about Ireland and then it's only when she's bringing it to Ireland that she realises that it's crap. And it's just a bit embarrassing and that it's stereotyped and weird. And so it was sort of like this writing where... When I was writing it was like about this... Um, how Ireland reacts to portrayals of itself. And then I was meanwhile absolutely paranoid that this portrayal of Ireland was going to be rejected by Ireland. Sorry, that sounds probably really no. mad, but it was a constant loop It was in a my constant head. circle. I think the, only, the first time I heard you sound even a bit relaxed about it was, do you remember, you printed it all off into a... So Caroline and I both have this habit of printing off anything we've finished yeah. into a sort of spiral-bound mm-hmm. book and then sitting there and going copy through editing it, it, yeah. copy editing it by hand. And your brother came over... And did all the accents, mm. and you both and you both sat down and read all the dialogue. We did like out. a table reading of all the scenes in Carrie, yeah, to make sure you'd done it right. And that was the most relaxed I'd ever seen you about the book. It was like yeah. another Irish person has read this, yeah. And it was interesting because I had read it, but I had not been able to provide anything that you needed in terms of reassurance about Irishness. Mm. I had done lots of reassuring in terms of plot and in terms of this is a yeah. beautiful book that's very well written. The characters are very good. Everything's very strong. But what I have not been able to give you is that sense of, I have done this right and somebody from my home agrees through. Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking about this earlier before the podcast about the fact that there, there is a real joy to writing about the world when yeah. you do it properly. There's a real joy to research. It's, it's There's a real so joy true. to talking to people, of yes. listening to, of listening and trying to represent what you've heard. Particularly when... You know, you're talking to people who are not themselves writers and have no intent intention of writing about their experience. Mm. I don't know how much I can say about this, but you, for instance, are talking to a Lebanese priest. Yeah, I'm talking to several Lebanese people, one of whom is a priest. A <laughs> yeah. priest about, uh, about faith in Lebanon. And he has no intention of writing about his experience, mm-hmm. but you are going to learn from him. So yeah. that you can, if you want to, And it's to, weird because it. you see all these headlines, and this is so off topic, and I hope, well, I don't know, because of length, but um, the, all the, all the kind of chat in the industry is about like, authors aren't allowed to write about anything anymore, there's all this box checking, and there's all this bullshit, and it should just be an organic experience, it's like, completely strips out the nuances of like, most writers enjoy doing research most because they're nerds because that's why they're authors. Most writers enjoy interviewing people because most of them used to be journalists. Most of you know what I mean? Like most writers like doing this stuff and now we've codified it and we're just talking about it in this very formal way that makes it seem like a chore when actually it's always been part of the job. I think that's so true. It has always been part of the job. So weird to think of like people hearing this podcast and then reading this book and being like, this is about a girl. <laughs> Who goes to an island and meets a dog. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I think there are lots of other people who can ask you, like, so, the button museum, what made you think of the buttons? Mm. Or, you know, Magdalene Laundries. Yeah. What do you think? Which was a big part of the that? research process, or we're talking about research processes, of, like, because there is a lot about... And that was also, actually, when we, when we were talking earlier on about my fear about this book, which is... At the centre of this book is a mystery, 
and then mystery is, which is a surprise to no one of any mystery that happens in Ireland, the church, right? Like <laughs> very much the butler did it of Irish. Very history. much the butler did it exactly. Is it's the church, um, and how the church sort of gets its many tentacles into any into things, and um, the 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 people in this book who die are are victims of a sort of. Um, Catholic industrial complex that basically crippled Ireland for most of the 20th century and was really the reason that the Magdalene laundries were able to operate for as long as they did because they were extremely profitable. Like, it was extremely profitable to make women fall in women and to keep them that way because they could do things. (laughs) They could do things for slave labour that were illegal elsewhere. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Their babies bad, were bad. sold into adoption abroad. Like there was, you know, you've seen Philomena. We've all seen Philomena. It's, you know, it's, it's, um, this is a really hideous thing where many survivors are still alive. And here I am, and this is, this is Caroline 2019 talking to you. Here I am inventing a plot about the people, about fictional people who this happened to when the real ones are walking around in the world with unimaginable pain. And it, it felt like such a sensitive area to tread into and maybe too garish to write a mystery plot around it with these like two gals, these two millennial gals trying to figure out where they stand in all of this. But also that was me just being like, and I think all young Irish women or millennial Irish women or, or even older just being like, where do I fit into all of this? You know, where, because like you grew up in Ireland and you grew up, um, knowing that if you get pregnant, you can't get an abortion unless somebody is cool enough to take you abroad. And knowing that if you were doing the same things 25 years ago, that you could be put into a laundry. And knowing all these terrible things, but also not knowing enough. It's like this like ghost in the attic that is only talked about sometimes. And I think, for me, I think like the repeal of the eighth movement for a lot of women was... The, the reason there was so much rage around that and so much energy and fire. I think partly it was about reproductive rights. Of course it was about reproductive rights. But I think it was also about like a fire and like a bile that needed to come up regardless of what the issue was. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And that was and that was like a real nerve centre of like, yeah, I'm talking about this. Where it's like a simultaneous like, I have no business talking about this. And a... Uh, you know, and and a, and a parallel. I have every business talking about this. I because have to talk about this. I have to talk about this. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? When we we began this podcast a little bit by saying the thing about having a book out is you want to snatch it out of everybody's hands and also press it into everybody's hands. Yeah. You don't want anyone to read it. You want everyone to read it. And I think there's an interesting link there between you saying, "I can't be the one to talk about this. I have to be the one to talk yeah. about this." Yeah. And I think. That kind of comes back to the novel as well. It's Charlie being like, what right do I have to speak? I have to speak. Yeah. I am the only one who can say this. I am not at all the person to say this. And perhaps that's at the heart of every... Every creative endeavour, and I want to put creative in, like, scare quotes there, because I want it to be as kind of broad and all-encompassing a word as possible every time you speak out or every time you are, you know, involved in activism or every time you... say something you don't want to say or every time you make something is this sense of why me and it has to be me yeah and I think what's interesting as well 
what's been really interesting for me as an Irish writer is that looking around and looking at my contemporaries and seeing everybody dealing with the exact same thing. Like, it's so funny because we're such a small island, but we're, we produce, a lot, particularly in the last like, 10 years, a lot of female writers. And, like, you've got, you got Sarah Griff, who, like, her... Sarah Maria Griffin, who's one of my really dear friends, and she wrote this book, Other Words for Smoke, last year, which was about dealing with... dealing with the Magdalene Laundries and dealing with the heritage of that. You've got um, sort of Louise O'Neill is another friend who... She has just come up with a book called After the Silence. And it's, it's mad because... Both these writers I've had drinks with and coffees with and lunches with and we've been working on separate things and then we go like, oh, we're working on the same thing. We might as well be writing the same book because we both, we both, we're all, you know, born within two or three years of each other. We're all the same generation. We're all been like growing in the same fertilizer of like this sort of shadowy history of women in that country and where we put them and what we do with them. I don't know. And I... I wonder whether this is the time to think again about I can't remember who said it to you but books are sold on tables not pedestals that was Sarah Murray Giffen yeah Sarah the Mary wisest Griffin, person in my life the wisest wisest writer of all yeah she um, said to me yeah let me repeat that because it's so good and I think about it all the time and if anyone is thinking of publishing or is publishing and this happens to a lot of writers which is they have half a draft or a full draft in their word processor and they're just like um oh, somebody else has a book that's about the exact same thing, so I can't write it or I can't send this to anyone or whatever. And to this, my friend Sarah Murray Griffin always says, books are sold on tables and not pedestals. You don't walk into a bookshop and see, um, you know, just one spotlight over one book. It's not a Hollister shop. (laughs) (laughs) It is not a Hollister shop. No, it is a table and it's like a Waterstones table. And on that table is like, a good murder and like some women from Ireland and like here's some stuff from some Indian expats it's always like always that it's always like grouped together in terms of themes and identities and that kind of stuff and if people buy one they'll buy the other yeah exactly people want their one they'll buy the other you know it's like but, when you follow someone on Twitter and then you follow six of their friends do you know what I mean <laughs> but what I kind of was getting at with the tables not pedestals thing mm-hmm. is that that's what's so interesting that's why people want to buy four books by young Irish women is because they want to see huh, I was interested in that theme. I wonder what other angles there are of looking at it. I wonder what other lenses we can look at this through. Yeah. I wonder how else this could be shaped or what other forms this would take in someone else's mind. Mm. Yeah. Which I I guess I bring up really in case anyone listening to this is thinking, I had a book like that. (laughs) Yeah, if you had a book like that, please just find an agent and when you... and say to that agent hey you know how this book has been big well my book is similar but slightly different want to take a chance on an unknown kid and I guarantee you it will go better than if you try to obscure that fact is there anything you want to to say about the novel that no one's talked about yet I had put a note to say music exclamation mark because there's so much music in this novel there is and there's so much trad in the novel I absolutely get it there doesn't Trad music is something that is so old and it's like these songs have been around for hundreds of years and they're older than you know the church or sectarian violence or this like very conservative worldview or all this stuff about Ireland that makes me uncomfortable and that I don't like and I get to just like revel in this beautiful old kind of corny kind of strange kind of like fundamentally uncool but so uncool that it's kind of cool again thing. And I just love listening to it. I love ending any night 
with my boyfriend around this table, us listening to Trout. <laughs> think about Kevin singing Raglan Road. Yeah. On the steps of the Cutty Sarg. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. He's a very, he's a very beautiful singer. He's a wonderful you baritone. You sang, and then we made your brother sing, which I never thought we'd get to do. He did, he sang The Wild Rover. Yeah. It was very moving. It was very moving. But then, yeah, actually all those songs we just mentioned are in this book, because I feel like I wanted to give her those things that I have. You know, I wanted to give her something older than, older than the church and older than anything. To really stick her stick her stick it you know <laughs> well that was something I wanted to talk about was the kind of the three sections of this book are each book ended by me or each music they have different epigraphs and the epigraph is always music yes so um, no one's actually asked about this I'm so glad to talk about this yeah so I wanted to talk about the three so part one is the Black Velvet Band um, which is an, a very 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 old folk song um, and I think the the verse in part one is um a sad misfortune came over me that caused me to stray from the land, far away from me friends and relations, and betrayed by the Black Velvet Band. And it's, you know, it's a very, very, very old song. And it also foreshadows the first act of the book, which is Charlie going back to this island, wearing this figurative Black Velvet Band of shame and of grief and of everyone knowing who she is and what she stands for. And that's a very old song. And then the second part of the book is on Raglan Road, um, I'm not going to bother quoting it because it's a very famous poem, but it's On Martin Road was written in the 30s by Patrick Kavanagh, but then sung by the Dubliners by Luke Kelly. So it's already, it's a photocopy of a photocopy. And so we're already getting this thing that's dim because I, I most people know it for the song, but it's originally a poem. And so I like the idea of like Xeroxing and it getting fainter. And then the third part of the book is a sample from a punk band who I used to love and I still love, but they're not together anymore, called Fight Like Apes. I loved them when I was growing up in Cork. They were like my band. And the line is, we tried to contact them by, by radio, but no response. Then they attacked a town. A small town, I'll admit, but nevertheless a town of people, people who died. Which is a very literal thing of what the, what the book is about, but it's also like, it's a song from 2008. So the whole book, we're moving through this music from a very, very old Ireland to a very new one. And the old Ireland is figurative and the middle Ireland is a photocopy of a photocopy and the new Ireland is the thing that is telling you the truth. I listened to a lot of, a lot of Irish music while I was writing this book. Some of it very, very old and some of it very new. Like very eagle-eyed listeners of Irish alternative music and readers of this book will notice there's a, a line directly lifted from a Pillow Queen's song. Which they've read and they liked. <laughs> I'm so happy for you. I feel... They really liked it. I DM'd them a little bit. It was really cool. <laughs> it was really cool. It was really cool. The band liked me. <laughs> the band liked my fan art that I pressed into their hand at the gig. Yeah, I don't really know how you go out at this. <laughs> Nor I, friend. Nor I. I had written so many careful notes in the margin of uh, this very battered proof. Mm. And we talked about absolutely none of them. But I think we have instead talked about things that no interviewer could really get to which is why this book happened how it felt to write it and how yeah. it feels to have written it which is what many interviews with authors claim to be about but few actually are well that's because they're not being interviewed by their best friend in their pajamas <laughs> with no bra no bra no parents no bra and no parents 
This has been Sentimental Garbage, and I've been Karen O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E, or email me by the podcast at ZaralineO'Donoghue at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thanks to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Dave for the logo, and Acast for the recording space. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com